be with you again. Um, we were just commenting to several people here that the last time that I was with you, two Sundays in a row, uh, last summer, we were outside. The first Sunday was 114 degrees, and I think there were 12 people out there suffering <laughs> with us. The next Sunday was 94, and it felt like the Arctic winds were blowing, and it was a uh, Quite a relief, but it's nice to be inside, amen? amen. And it's good to be here uh, with you this morning. I want to I share with you this morning from Philippians, and my prayer this morning is that the message that I share with you is a message of encouragement. If you've studied the book of Philippians at all, you know that this is perhaps one of Paul's most personal and intimate letters that he's written. But it really is a message, the entire book is really a message uh, of hope and of encouragement during a time of great persecution. I came across a a passage of scripture a couple of weeks ago that uh, I read, it's a familiar passage to you, um, that I read in preparing for a message that I was preaching at another church. And it was Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and we probably could all quote that by memory. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Sometimes scriptures are so familiar to us that we read them, and they just kind of trip off off our tongue. We, We read them, or we hear them, or we quote them without a lot of thought about the circumstance that birthed those words. And so I want want to share with you a little bit this morning of kind of the background to Philippians and and the situation that was found in the text, because I believe that all of God's Word is impactful to us. But when we understand the circumstance that the author was in or that the recipients of the letter were in, it adds a deeper appreciation to us for what's being said. Philippi was a city that was conquered, named after Uh, Philip of Macedonia. His desire was to unite all of the Macedonian, this federation of, uh, loose federation of Greek tribes together to conquer the world. Well, Philip didn't accomplish that, but he conquered this city and named it after himself. By the way, his son accomplished really his desire a couple of years later with, as Alexander the Great conquered the known world, united the Greek tribes together as a nation. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the city of Philippi was more influenced by Rome than it was by Greece, even though, again, it sits in Macedonia. It was was near the city of Philippi where a civil war was uh, fought. Remember, uh, uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated, which created the civil war in Rome, and the troops that were loyal to Caesar came up with the rebellious troops near Philippi, and there was a great battle. After the battle was won and the rebellion was squashed, many of the the Philippian soldiers and and officers occupied, uh, the Roman officers occupied the city of Philippi. So much so that Philippi became known as a Roman city of the highest order, which meant that it was considered Italian soil, with all of its rights and all of its privileges. So again, here are these people that are Greek in heritage. 
that adopt Roman culture, they adopt Roman religion, they adopt Roman uh, way of governing, they adopt the Latin language as the official language of the city because their greatest pride was being this Roman city of the highest order. But along with that came this idea of Roman superiority. With Roman superiority came this um, embracing of hatred for the Jews and later for Christians and the church. See, for the, for the Romans, there was very little that distinguished Christians from the Jews. They were people that stood against their, their philosophies, stood against their religion, and, and they were persecuted viciously. It was to this setting that Paul writes these words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You see, Paul's longing to the believers undergoing tremendous persecution was this, that the church, for the church, suffering is not something to be transcended, but to something to journey through. Because trials come. Trials are a part of, uh, of life, and trials are a part of the Christian life. And when Paul writes these words, he doesn't write them as someone who is unaware of the suffering of the city. He knew very well about the suffering of the city. But at the same time, Paul himself was enduring great persecution because he was in prison at the time of writing this letter. So these are not just pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by words that Paul offers. These are words with depth and gravity to help believers understand that regardless of the circumstances that we face, regardless of the things that we go through, we can indeed rejoice in the Lord always. It's in the text that was read just a moment ago that I think we find an answer, an example that Paul presents to the church as how we do that. How do we rejoice in the Lord always regardless of the circumstances that we face? In fact, the the text that that we're going to read here this morning, I believe, is going to answer this question. How do we rejoice in the Lord always? And there are four principles drawn from these four verses that were just read that I want us to take some time and walk through and look through that we might understand how, not only how we rejoice in the Lord always from a cognitive perspective, but also how do we adopt that attitude ourselves? So here's four things. If you have your outline handy in your bulletin, I want you to take that out and look at that with me this morning as we look at these four principles on how we rejoice in the Lord always. The first one, verse 5, is have the attitude of Jesus. This is what Paul says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is going to be foundational to the other four that we're going to look at, but this is important for us to understand what does it mean, this attitude. The Greek word that's translated here as attitude is a word that really means frame of mind or state of mind. You see, Paul is describing the state of mind or the frame of mind that Jesus had in his relationship with the Father. So when we think about this for a moment. Had the Father told Jesus to go from the place where he was to a new place, Jesus would not only have stopped what he was doing and gone, but he would have wanted to go. 
There's a difference in that. Not just doing the activities, but that being the fulfillment of the heart's desire to do those things. Had the father said to the son, um, stop what you're doing, he would have stopped. If he had said go, he would have gone. Regardless of what it was that the father asked, the Lord Jesus was so focused on the father's will and desire that his attitude was, everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I do is to be done to honor the Father. Jesus maintained this attitude and was focused completely on the Father. It was Jesus' deepest desire to serve the Father's will. It was his desire to do what the Father wanted him to do, wanted of him. It was his greatest desire to please the Father because they had that relationship and the, and the Son's focus was so, uh, so clear on that. Folks, you realize that when our desire is to accomplish the things that the Father wants us to do, that the activities of our life just become the natural overflow of those things. If that's our attitude. My pastor, years ago, now, I I don't know if this was just a pastor's story or if this was really something that happened to him, but he told it as if it was his experience that he was on an airplane traveling from one place to another. And, and he said the people that were around him were particularly unhappy about different things. And he noticed how the flight attendant would go and would, would serve their needs. And, and always, even when people were ugly to her, she had this smile on her face, this attitude that was uh, so positive in all things. So he said that he would wait until everybody got off the plane and he wanted to say to her, I really appreciated the way you handled yourself. I appreciated all that you did. In fact, you know, sometimes we get good service somewhere and we don't say anything. The only time we say something is when we get bad service. So he wanted to to make a note and, and let someone, her supervisor, know what a great job he thought that she did. So everybody got off the plane and he stopped her and he said, I just want you to know that... You have so impressed me with your attitude and the way you dealt with the conflicts and things around you. I would like to write a letter to your boss at the airline and let them know just how, how pleased I am with that. And she said, well, I don't work for the airline. And it took him by surprise because she was wearing a flight attendant uniform. She was serving drinks. She was doing all these things. And then she followed up by saying, I work for the Lord. The airline simply pays my paycheck. That's the kind of attitude we're talking about. When our focus is so connected to the Father, if that is our attitude, then the request is secondary, right? It doesn't matter what the Lord asks if our attitude is focused in on Him. Let's look at the second uh, principle of how to rejoice in the Lord always. And it's from verse 6. And it's this. Surrender your rights... To the Lord. Verse 6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was found in the form, uh, Jesus was found in the form of God, but he did not cling to that form. Jesus was eternal God, and that never changed, even in his human form. The, the scriptures talk about kenosis as a theological concept of him emptying himself, not of who he was as God, but of his form and of his rights that he might live 
as a human. See, Jesus never one time complained. He never one time claimed his rights. I am eternal God and so I should be treated as such. He simply lived his life to serve the Father, voluntarily laying those things down that he might accomplish the Father's purpose. Here's a truth sometimes that we have a a little difficulty in, in negotiating in everyday life. We can't demand our rights and cling to our rights and rejoice in the Lord always at the same time. That we have to surrender our personal rights to the focus and will of the Father if we're going to rejoice. We can stand on our rights or we can rejoice, but we can't do both. Remember, rejoicing in the Lord always is about giving letting the Lord set the agenda for our lives. And this is the example that Jesus gave. So that we say, whatever I am, whatever I have accomplished, whatever standing I may have in life is not mine, but surrendered to Him and to His will and to surrender control of those things to Him. If one's mindset, going back to that attitude that Jesus had, if one's mindset is, all that I have is His, then it doesn't matter if he asks for it. It doesn't matter if he moves it to someone else. It doesn't matter any of those things. We'll be able to rejoice. I was trying to teach this concept when I was pastoring in Lake Forest in stewardship and uh, about how if we live life with open hands, it doesn't hurt when God takes things out of our hand. You know, if we hold on to it tight, then, then sometimes it feels like it's being ripped out. But if we live life with open hands, it's, it, it, it is a, uh, a time we can rejoice when God does something else with those things. So stewardship. So I thought, how do I teach this concept about, about this is all God's anyway. It doesn't matter. We can let go of it. So on the way to church Sunday morning, I went and got out $100 out of the ATM machine. And I got one of our ladies... One of our meekest and mildest women in the church, Gloria Trump was her name. And I said, Miss Gloria, I'm going to preach my message. And at some point in time, I'm going to ask for $100. And so I gave her that $100. And I said, I want you to hold your hand up and say, here, pastor, here's $100 for you. So I went on and was preaching about about stewardship and about how important it is for us to recognize that everything that we have belongs to the Lord anyway in the first place. And so I got to preaching, and then I saw someone sitting in the, in the congregation, and I just stopped, and I said, Hey, brother, how would you and your family like to go to lunch with my family and I? He said, Oh, that'd be great. I said, Is there anybody here in the congregation that has $100 that I could have? Understand, I didn't say borrow. Can I have? And, and, uh, and you know, so we can go to lunch together. And so... Miss Gloria held her hand straight up and said, Here, Pastor, I have $100. Well, she didn't let her husband in on what was going on. So there was this audible response, just this reaction on his part. What are you doing? And therein lies the lesson, right? I asked her, Miss Gloria, how come it was easy? Kevin didn't think it was easy at the time, but... How come it was easy to give me that $100? And she said it was because it was yours to start with. So it's, it's that sense of surrender of all that I have. But listen, 
we can only do that if our focus is on him. If he's setting our agenda for life. And that's the example that the Lord Jesus gave. The third principle is become the instrument God desires. Look at verse 7 again. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. The birth narrative tells us that Jesus was born in poor and humble circumstances. He was born in a filthy manger. His parents were probably very, very poor. He, he grew up and learned the skills of a carpenter. Jesus, from human perspective, was not put into a setting of great influence. But that was what the Father desired of him. And so Jesus was willing to take on that form, willing to be the instrument that God needed for him to accomplish his purpose. Now that's not probably where you and I would have planned out for the Savior of the world to come into the world, right? We probably would have put him in the family of a wealthy family or an influential family so that he would have a platform where he could share the message in the most effective way. But that wasn't God's plan. And so Jesus was willing to be the instrument that the Father desired for him to be. Oftentimes, we want to select the type of instrument that will be for the Lord. I don't, maybe, maybe I'm just preaching to me. There are times when I want to tell the Lord, Lord, I think I know myself pretty well, and this is where I would be best, ser- best suited to serve you. And then he says, no, that's not my plan. That may be your plan, but that's not my plan. And you know what, ha- what happens when I confuse my plan with his plan? is there's only frustration on my part. God's not frustrated, and he's not up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering, oh my, what am I going to do next? He's patient, and and I'm going to hit some bumps along the way, but he's going to wait for me to stop and say, Father, you're right. I want to be who you want me to be. And so that's the picture that we have of Jesus. Jesus was willing to do that. Remember, again, it's not about us. And that's the example that we have in the text. It's about him. It's about the Father. And that's how Jesus lived his life, about the Father. If we're able to focus our attention to be the instruments that God desires us to be, and if that's our desire to be the instrument that God desires us to be, not just to do the things, but to want to do the things that he asks us to do, we'll be able to rejoice in the Lord always. The fourth principle needed to rejoice in the Lord always. Exercise obedience to God's plan. Jesus did what the Father needed him to do. There was no place that Jesus went where he was complaining along the way, that's not what I want, that's not my way, that's not my desire, that's not my will. His focus was so clearly on the Father that he was... He was sold out 100% to what the Father's desire was. See, in everything he was obedient. But more than that, he knew that this is what the Father wanted, and so that was his heart's desire. He didn't make life about himself. He made it about the Father and the Father's plan and the Father's purpose. So whatever came his way, whatever he was asked to do, 
And whatever deeds that were laid before him, he was obedient. And I want you to think about this. Listen to what Paul says again in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just note the nuance of what Paul says here. As if being obedient to the point of death wasn't enough, he clarified that even death on a cross, which indicates for us just how gruesome that type of death was. And Jesus was obedient to that. The whole of the example that Jesus gives us is that complete focus on the Father's purpose and plan is what enables the believer to rejoice in the Lord always. You see, it's only when we follow, allow the Lord to control our lives, it's it's when we allow him to set our direction that we find peace and we find fulfillment and we find, we find joy in that. You know, the, there are many things that we struggle with as humans. And again, maybe I'm only preaching to me. So that's okay. The, uh, I've come to learn as well this morning. But our flesh often wants to take over and... And we want to do things our way. The foundational difference between those who can rejoice in the Lord always and those who will be frustrated or disappointed or or upset is the expectations that they have for the Christian life. See, I think the, the picture that Scripture teaches us is that when we lay our lives down, things will change. But when they change, it's okay because the the directive comes from the Father. If we go into the Christian life expecting that things are going to remain the same, that's when we find ourselves in conflict. I mean, think about the, the Lord Jesus expected things to change as he was laying his life before the Father, renewing continuously. And they did. But he was okay with that because that was the Father's plan. As Paul was heading out on his missionary journeys, he expected that things would change, and that was okay because, again, that was the Father's plan. When missionaries surrender to go to a different country, a different culture, a place away from home, they expect that things will change. They won't be exactly the way they were at home, but they surrender themselves to the Lord's direction and guidance, and it's okay because it's His plan. When we expect life to change for the sake of the gospel because it's the Lord's leading, it counteracts the grumblings that, be, that can well up within us because we understand this is what he desires. I mean, you've all experienced this. You've been in, in ministry. You've been in circumstances where you felt like as you were serving the Lord, this is what I was created for. There is a great joy and fulfillment that comes in that but it comes because your heart is focused on what he desires, not necessarily what we want. If you think about this and and all the setting for what the Philippians were going through and listening to Paul's words, you realize that this letter in many ways served as a lesson in spiritual survival for God's people because this was not going to be the end of their troubles. There were going to be troubles that were going to come again and again and again. 
In our own lives, we experience difficulties and frustrations. In our own lives, we experience hurts. But if we can surrender ourselves, keep our focus on him, surrender ourselves as the example that the Lord Jesus gave, that even in the midst of the difficult times, we can rejoice in the Lord always. This is the example the Lord Jesus set before us and the example that Paul encouraged the Philippians to follow. And it's the example that they've set for us to follow as well. Let us give everything we have, everything that we are, to the focus on the Father and the Father's will and the Father's purpose. And we'll find that no matter what comes our way, we'll be able to rejoice in the Lord always. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we... As we've looked at at your word this morning, Lord, my prayer is that, that we will, all of us, remember these things. Some people in this room, Father, and, and I don't know individual circumstances, but some may be in the midst of trials right now. And Lord, I pray that these teachings, that these verses, will be verses that will help them as they seek to surrender all that they're going through and all that they that they're dealing with to you and that, Lord, that they'll be able to rejoice. Father, there may be some in this room that don't have a relationship with you and are wondering what is this Christian life about. Maybe they're looking for hope. Things are not working out. They've got difficulties and struggles that are going on. Lord, I pray that you will show them that through a relationship with you, that they can have hope. Because as been said here this morning, as we were worshiping this morning, as we were singing this morning, that there is no one who can bring hope but Jesus Christ. And Father, individuals will simply, simply just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you. And believe, Lord, that you died and rose again for their sin, for their sacrifice. And you surrender their life to you. They'll be born again. Father, we, we submit this time, this time of reflection, a time of decision, a time of focus on what you're asking us to do, that we may follow your example, that we may be people who touch the lives of others and find fulfillment in ourselves as we seek to follow you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.